Please turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. If you will, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke this evening as we will begin looking in Luke. And we'll look at a couple of different passages of Scripture tonight as we lay a foundation for our topic and our text of why we should study and regularly preach from the Old Testament. And I know that sounds like an unusual title. In fact, I've entitled tonight's message for our learning in admonition, picking up on Paul's language that all of the scriptures, the Old Testament included, were written. These things, he says, were written before time for our learning and for our admonition. And so as we take that to heart, let's look in Luke chapter 24 and pick up in verse 13. Luke 24 and verse 13. And remind ourselves of a text that happens right after the resurrection. Luke is recording the chronicle events of the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And now in chapter 24, he has risen. And yet his disciples do not fully understand what is taking place. They are, they are discouraged. They are downcast. And two of his disciples find themselves on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them. And he begins to talk with them, and they do not realize who he is. So join me there in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near. And went with them. And so we try to imagine that scenario. And a likely scenario is they're walking on the road, and Jesus, simply as a fellow traveler, joins in pace with them at a bypassing or a crossroad. And so you just can imagine it with your mind. Jesus himself drew near and went in with them. But their eyes, as we saw this morning, notice their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And Jesus said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you are having with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of those whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? (laughs) In other words, everyone knows. Where have you been? Have you been under a rock? Do you not know what is taking place? Their hearts are burdened about these things. And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So verse 25, then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Now notice here the phrase, in all the things that the prophets have spoken. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament prophets. Verse 26, ought not the Christ 
to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, he's saying, you know these things, oh foolish ones. And you know the Bible, you know the scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies. And if you know these things, there are promises made to the people of God. Remember, just a few verses up, they were saying in verse 21, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Oh, friends, he has. Have no fear. And yet they do not fully understand what is taking place. Again, verse 26, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Turn with me now to John chapter 5, just briefly by way of introduction, and let's turn over to John chapter 5 as we consider this passage as well of the fourfold witness that Jesus gives to his people. Both of these passages will be helpful for us in reminding us of the importance of the Old Testament scriptures in our faith and for our learning and, as, and for our admonition. John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus says, Now if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he, which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to him John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and the shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. What light was that? John was a preacher. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so he points to that teaching and preaching ministry of John. And he says, verse 36, he says, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. Notice verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Both in Luke chapter 24 and in John chapter 5, the, the main point of what Jesus is saying in his messages to those that he's preaching to, those that he's having a personal conversation with, is if you look at the Old Testament as, as fractional, isolationist, if you view the Old Testament as standalone accounts, individual moral stories, stories that simply the takeaway is don't do that, only do this. Don't do that, do this. Or if you look at the accounts and you simply walk away with be a better Daniel, be a better Joseph, be a better Esther, Moral stories, character stories, of which, if we're not careful, all of us have done at some point in time. Let's just, let's just be honest. But the point is not Daniel. Daniel can't save. The point is not Esther. Esther can't save. 
And the point is, is ultimately, while there is thou shalt nots, and no doubt about it, the moral law of God, civil law of God, the ultimate point in John 5 and in Luke 24 is that all of these things point us to Christ. All of these things show us our need for Christ. All of these things point us to the true and better. For example, we were talking about Daniel. He's not a standalone uh, character. There is a true and better Daniel. There is a true and better Joseph. These things foretell us, point us to the Messiah who will come and redeem his people. Many Christians are familiar with the mountaintop experiences, if you will, or accounts in the Old Testament. I try to refrain from calling them stories. As a home that is delights and literacy and lots of books and we're, we're reading all the time, I feel like it's important in the Lamb household that I try to distinguish between stories and biblical accounts. There are lots of stories. There are lots of funny stories, good stories, ancient stories. But when we come to the Bible, just as an aside, I'm trying to make an application. It is important for me that when I communicate to my children, this is not another story like all the other stories. This is truth. This, as we're in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this is not just a story. This is telling us about Christ. This is God's truth. This is how God is revealing himself what he is like to us as his people. Yet in spite of the familiarity that we often have regarding the Old Testament, many people are content to simply stay within the confines of the New Testament alone, disregarding the fact that 77% of the Bible is the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking there's, there's a number of reasons why. And while that may be different for you and for me, I would think for many people it begins with their own experience growing up. Maybe there are lots of opinions. I've grown up in the life of the church hearing all kinds of opinions. And I've often heard the opinion, well, I just read the New Testament. I'm a New Testament Christian. I get what they're saying, I think. And they will declare, they'll make known that they spend their time in their exhaustive study um, in an efficient manner of simply staying within um, the New Testament. Some take that a step further. And they say, well, I'm a red-letter Christian, <laughs> as if we can't trust any other aspects of the Word of God. As we study the Word of God, I want a red-letter Bible, and uh, I want to study simply that which tells me our direct quotes of Jesus. Well, that would be very foolish to call ourselves simply a red-letter Christian, just like it is foolish for us to say, well, I'm only the New Testament Christian, limiting my exposure, limiting my understanding and take in my scripture intake of the Bible to simply the New Testament. So many people simply have come, had bad experiences. Someone has led them astray. Someone has taught them false doctrine. Or someone early on in their life has nailed that emphasis home to them. Others have never had a pastor model preaching from the Old Testament for them. Their pastor has only preached in the New Testament. That's not the end of the world in and of itself. If a pastor, teacher, preacher is preaching the whole counsel of God, in every sermon, he's going to get some Old Testament in because most of the New Testament is simply a rehearsing of the Old Testament. I love uh, some particular translations like the New King James, the New American Standard. One feature that I love about them is that as we study the Word of God, in the New Testament, in those translations particularly, they italicize Old Testament quotations. And if you walk through your Bible, you'll notice as you get into Romans, Galatians, verses 2 Corinthians, uh, all, all of the, the writings here, even the, the, the messages of Christ, there's constant, continual references back to the Pentateuch, back to the Old Testament law. We'll see more about that 
in just a moment. So for some, they've never seen it modeled or heard it. For others, they feel that it's difficult to understand, and we can understand that as well. There's been times as we read in our Bible reading in the Old Testament, there's passages that are difficult to understand. Some of it deals with the fact that the context of the Old Testament comes out of an Eastern culture and language. There are laws and customs that are hard to understand initially, that are unique to those peoples and to those times. And if we're just honest, we're narcissistic as Americans. We're consumed with self. We're consumed with our little worlds. And so as we begin to get into the Old Testament, we don't want to learn about things that are so hard and so difficult and so strange initially. But friends, as we mature in grace, we begin to understand that this is more than just differences. This is so helpful in teaching us about the truth of God, helping us to understand the realities of biblical doctrine and how God works and how he works through these people. Again, it was God who chose the nation Israel. And so in one sense, as, as a people of God, we should be interested in how the Old Testament chronicles God's chosen people and what it means for us as the church. For other people, they don't touch the Old Testament because the names, quite frankly, are too hard. There are unusual names, names that are hard to pronounce. You should see the look on some of these guys' faces as we rehearse who's reading the scriptures in our meeting before church. And uh, they will joke with me if a passage has hard. They say, you gave me that one on purpose. And I'll say, no, 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 I promise I didn't. There's sometimes there's difficult names for all of us to say as we read the Bible. You get into some of the begats, begat, begat, and uh, those names can be extremely, extremely difficult uh, to understand. One thing we have to understand is that Israel's history is interwoven with other cultures, and some of which these cultures are significantly different, not only than our culture, but also different than Israel's. Here's another thing that makes studying the Old Testament scriptures hard or maybe difficult at first glance. Old Testament geography presents a challenge as well. Here we think of north, south, east, and west as north, south, east, and west. But in the Old Testament, the compass is oriented towards the east. South is to the right. North is to the left because Jerusalem is fixed upon Mount Zion. And the text speaks of constantly in the Old Testament narratives of going up to Jerusalem, praying towards Jerusalem, even though they may be traveling in a southerly direction. References to Egypt are constantly referred to as going down to Egypt when they may not necessarily be going down to Egypt. So, for example, Upper Egypt is actually Southern Egypt, and Lower Egypt is actually Northern Egypt. So it can be confusing, and the only way to understand that is if we take God's Word and take some biblical tools at times, or as we're reading the, 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 the account or the narrative, we can get confused if we don't understand that fact. One helpful understanding is the fact that Egypt is always a type, or typically referred to as a type, of the world. And so going down to Egypt has more than just a geographical connotation, but a spiritual one as well. Going back to Egypt, if you will, going down to Egypt as we see in the life of Abraham and others. Many people feel that looking into the Old Testament and reading it in Bible devotions or preaching from it, and quite frankly, it's hard to apply. It's hard to apply. For example, the book of Proverbs at times can be easy to apply, but then at other times it can be very difficult to apply to our lives. The imprecatory Psalms are difficult at times. Do we pray this? Do we sing this? 
This is inspired scripture. How does this play a role in my life and in my devotion to the Lord? The Ten Commandments are easily understood and very familiar, as many of us have committed them to memory. But the prescriptions for worshiping God in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy at times can be difficult, and we need to understand why they are the way they are. And so we can ask the question, how are we on the other side of redemption to apply certain narratives? For example, the narratives of Numbers or the narratives of Judges. One thing we know for sure is that the Holy Spirit intended them for us as his people. But we have to ask the question, what did he intend for us, the church, in this new covenant of grace? At best, we are fearful. If you're like me, oftentimes, I just as I think about teaching God's word, I'm fearful of misapplying the word of God. But we don't need to let that fear lead us to avoiding hard passages altogether, which can be too easy to do. At best, that's what can happen. And at worst, it might just be that we're too lazy to discipline ourselves, to study the Word of God, and to rightly divide the Word of truth. Another reason why the Old Testament proves to be difficult to many believers is it takes much time to study. Much of the Old Testament is narrative. You can't sit down and read a few verses and and get a grasp and understanding of it. Just quite frankly, it takes time. Not tons of time, but it takes time. Certain units of expression or passages are very long. Context can be a chapter or two making the, the devotional passage or the passage to study, to teach, uh, long to get your mind wrapped around it, to get it inculcated within, to help you understand it in, in one account or in one sitting or in one message. Sometimes, as someone who reads the Proverbs almost every day, sometimes I miss a day, but my, I try to read the Proverbs each day, but sometimes, as, for example, you get into the book of Proverbs, you'll see that uh, the context is very limited. It packs a punch. And we're told initially uh, things that are confusing. So, for example, at times, Proverbs can seem to contradict itself. For example, Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Then verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what are we to do? And what are we not to do? Well, quite frankly, it takes meditation. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes prayer that says, Holy Spirit, if we come to something that is initially tough, I think J.C. Ryle calls, has a whole section in his writings called Tough Nuts to Crack. Tough Nuts to Crack. Well, there's oftentimes we come to a, a tough nut to crack. And the only way to crack it is to ask the Lord for light, to ask Him for help. And so we need to spend time but that takes discipline. And so, friends, I'm afraid that at times we have to ask ourselves and examine our hearts, do we discipline ourselves to dig into the Word of God, even the more difficult passages? And maybe a good uh, uh, analogy for us to be would simply this. We cannot walk outside and take the rake to look for gold. At times, we need to take the proper tool. We need to take a shovel, and we need to put forth some effort as we pray, as we're led of the Holy Spirit, and he will give us gold. I think one of the Puritans says it like this, the scriptures do not reveal themselves to lazy men. The scriptures don't just open themselves up to lazy men. So we need help, and sometimes it takes work, and we need to put forth that work. Another reason, by way of introduction, that we struggle to apply, to teach, to read the Old Testament is that it represents the Old Covenant. 
And so a common refrain is to simply say, well, we're under the new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. So why waste our time reading the old covenant or reading about the old covenant? Well, notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says this. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. He says, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the better, but of the Spirit. Excuse me, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So Paul gives insight to us here. Oftentimes as Christians or disciples of Jesus, uh, well, the refrain will be, well, we no longer live under the regulations of the law or the stipulations of the Old Testament, so therefore why should we apply ourselves or take the time to study it or to read it? One author named Walt Kaiser says this in his book, Old Testament Today. He says, there is a target out there. It's as if there's a target out there. And he likens it to children blindfolded playing with a pinata. Have any of you guys ever had a birthday party celebration where you took on that cultural tradition and, and you're whacking away, trying not to hit somebody, and you're hitting at a pinata? It's fun. But unfortunately, when, when that happens to the study of the scriptures, that's not a good thing. And he says, one, he, says he likens it to children playing with a pinata. There's a target out there that they're trying to aim at, but they're blindfolded. They flail wildly at the air and become frustrated with an exercise that offers so little in return for their efforts. But church, I want us to know tonight is that it's absolutely worth it to read the whole of our Bibles. Yet many modern men don't think so. Even pastors are now standing regularly in the pulpit and making public declarations about how the Old Testament is a waste of time for the church. The Old Testament is a waste of time for Christians. Most notable among them is Andy Stanley, who exhorted the, the church today to simply unhitch themselves as if the Old Testament, the context is that it's embarrassing. There are things that are, we should be ashamed of in the Old Testament, so we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and just kind of ignore it all together because we can't reach men today with the whole counsel of God's Word. Well, at the end, here in just a few moments, we're going to prove otherwise, all right? Just hang on to that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writing to Timothy says this, Timothy, all Scripture, not the New Testament alone, not the Scriptures I'm now being led of the Holy Spirit to write to you. He says, Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Maybe you could think about it like this. I'll be coming back to this reference in just a moment. But every New Testament command just about is referring to the Old Testament precept, a, a promise or something introduced in the Old Testament and then fully revealed and confirmed in the New Testament. As, Timoth as Paul exhorts Timothy to study the Word of God, to rightly divide the Word of God, all Timothy has at that moment is the Old Testament. So we've got to keep that, keep that in mind. So we need to plow the fertile soil of the Old Testament and ask the Lord to give light and insight. It will enhance our understanding of who God is, the Scriptures. It will give us big pictures revealing God's purposes, His divine plan for the gospel. It shows us the unfolding drama of redemption that is, quite frankly, developed very early on in the lives of the, God's people. In fact, the most important thing is it shows us and teaches us about who God is. If I use the word theology. Many people put down theology 
Many people, they hear that word, but they don't understand what that word is. They think of it as some type of academic term. Friends, theology is simply the study of God. And, and the point is simply this. I'm a theologian, and you're a theologian. The question is, is how good of a theologian are we? Uh, sometimes when we talk about a theologian, we'll, we'll preface something we're about to say with this. Well, well, I'm no theologian, but, well, that's not true. The question is, is the point is, is all of us are theologians, the question is, is how good of one are we? To understand what a theologian is, is simply one who studies God. Theology is the study of, theo is the study of, the, uh, theology ultimately is of the word, and the word is God, it's a reference to Yahweh, it's a reference to who God is in his essence and his nature and his person. So the question is, is are we a good theologian? Well, I pray so. And as we look into the Old Testament, part of the joys of studying the Old Testament scriptures is simply this. It shows us who our God is. The Bible says in the book of Daniel, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do mighty deeds or mighty exploits. As the Old Testament teaches us about who God is, it reveals his patience towards his people. It reveals his long-suffering. Friends, it will help us to understand God's kindness. It shows us his heart. It teaches us about his holiness. And when we grow in our understanding of who God is, in spite of these initial difficulties that are there, no doubt about it, but all worth the reward of persevering past them, ultimately, friends, it teaches us how to worship God. How do we know how to worship God without the aid of the psalmist? that we see throughout the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the, literally the songbook of Israel. As we saw this past summer as we were studying through the, the Psalms, the Psalms enhance our prayers. The Psalms teach us how to pray. The Psalms teach us how to praise. The Psalms teach us about who God is. They teach us about our ultimate purpose for our existence, which is worshiping God. Psalm 29, verse 2, Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory that is due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So to follow Andy Stanley's advice, we're to unhitch ourselves from these things. Friends, no thank you. And I'm not trying to give him more airtime than he deserves, but don't think that this is a in a corner philosophy. This is everywhere. And I want to strengthen and encourage you to not listen to those voices as you come across them on social media or, or however. Psalm 95 or 6, O come, and let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So as we, by way of introduction, look at these things, may the Lord help us as His people to have a renewed zeal for and love for not only the, the whole of the Scriptures and, of course, the glorious gospel in the New Testament, but to understand the background behind all of these things that we find in the Old Testament. Just a couple of brief points here this evening about why we should preach from the Old Testament regularly, Read from and study the Old Testament as God's people. These things, of course, in the title, we see it, is for our learning. All these things are for our learning and for our admonition. But number one, the Old Testament is divinely inspired. If we believe, and if you believe, as we as Christians believe about what the Bible is, we believe that the Bible is inspired, the inspired, holy word of God. We can have confidence in it. That means it's literally, it's, it's God-breathed. The book of Hebrews tells us that God moved upon men of old, Peter mentions this as well, to write and to pen his word. 
when Paul, again, as I referenced a moment ago, told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, to study the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, that all Scripture, he's primarily referring to the Old Testament. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, the, the believers at the church at Berea treasured and valued the Word of God. And so when Paul would come to them and systematically teach God's Word, Paul blesses them. He publicly commends them for all time because he says, even when I preach to them, Acts 17, 11, these Bereans searched the Old Testament Scriptures to see whether what I was preaching was right or not. Friends, it's a beautiful thing to say, you know, when we turn to a passage and, and to hear you open your Bibles. And while the sound is beautiful, no doubt, what's even more beautiful is that you're looking into the Word of God. That you're, you're, you're comparing what I'm saying to the plumb line, the anchor, the truth, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Old Testament, number one, is divinely inspired. This is why we should understand it. This is why we should read it. This is why we should teach it. We cannot say in good conscience, I believe that God's Word is the inspired Holy Word of God, and as a pastor leading the way in this church, not seek to preach as much of it as I can. You can say it like this, because we believe that God's Word is inspired, it necessitates that we preach it as much as possible, word by word, line by line, precepts upon precepts. Secondly, the Old Testament is not only divinely inspired, it is divine revelation from God to His people. The Old Testament is divine revelation to us as His people. As already mentioned, it reveals who God is, His power, His magnificent glory on display, His creative acts in the book of Genesis of calling out of nothing, everything, ex nihilo, His speaking everything into His existence. His calling into existence the universe and also revealing his personality, his attributes, his personhood as he exclaims in his creative work, everything that I have created is good. It is good. It also reveals who man is. It teaches us about the concept of man, the creation of man, but it also describes the spiritual reality of man that we are unregenerate. We see that man was made perfect in creation, God's glory is on display when he created Adam and Eve, and then we see that marred by sin. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, describes the unregenerate man that his heart is, the thoughts and the intents of his heart are, it were, only evil continually. We see the fruit of that in Genesis 11 as self-consumed man seeks to build the tower of Babel. So the Old Testament describes for us and chronicles for us man created imperfection, man's fall, the effects of sin, the need for the shedding of blood. As we see the book of Genesis just itself, just the book of Genesis is the seed plot of the whole Bible. Most major doctrines are introduced in seed form in the book of Genesis, making it fascinating to study. If you study and read the book of Genesis, just remember this. There's what's considered the law of first mention. When things begin to be introduced to mankind through the revealed divine word of God, it's the first time things are mentioned. As you begin to trace those threads out and see the full implications as they are fully consummated in the New Testament, it's absolutely fascinating for us to study and to apply and to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. So the Old Testament describes not only the concept of man, the creation of man, also his spiritual condition is unregenerate man. We see in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin, God drives out Adam and Eve from the garden. 
We say that this is his kindness on display. God's punishing acts are often acts of grace. So, for example, when he drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, he prevents them from eating the tree of life, therefore, and keeps them from living forever in an unregenerate state. Cain, guilty of his murder of Abel, says, this is a punishment beyond what I can bear. And God, in his punishment, gives him a sign or a mark so that none will murder him. He stipulates the philosophy or the teaching, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, for the sin of Lamech, Lamech to rein him in, and his prideful spirit of bragging that he has killed men because of what they have done to him. So these things help us to understand the need for salvation, the need for redemption, as we look at the seed plot of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis. Most beautifully, the Old Testament reveals to us God's redemptive plan. God introduces in Genesis chapter 3 the promise of salvation by faith and faith alone. God's plan will be accomplished uh, through the way that he's designed, and that is by faith, not by works. We see right off the bat, our men are studying the Hebrews 11 passage. We see right off the bat in the men's devotional time, men's prayer breakfast, that as we study right off the bat, Abel and Cain are immediately contrasting the two ways of worship and function throughout all time. Abel coming to God by faith, Cain coming by works. These things are revealed to us in the law of first mention in initial stages. We see that mankind continually tries to bring about God's promises, though, not by faith, but in his own way. In fact, Paul says of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that Abraham had the gospel preached to him, and he understood it, he believed it, and that salvation was given to him. But then... We see that Abraham is constantly reverting back to trying to help God. He's known for his faith. By faith, Hebrews 11 says, Abraham went out into a city that was promised to him. He stepped out by faith. But then oftentimes at his sanctification, if you will, Abraham reverts back to the sins of the flesh. So, for example, he tries to raise up Eliezer, Genesis chapter 15, to be the promised seed because he doesn't have a son yet. In Genesis 16, he points to Ishmael and tries to prepare Ishmael to be the promised seed. Constantly, God is saying, no, Abraham, I've made a promise to you, and I will fulfill my promise to you. We see in Genesis 27, Jacob attempting to steal his brother Esau's blessing, conniving, making deceitful plotting and practices, even though the promise has already been given to his mother and to his father. So the Old Testament reveals to us God's redemptive plan beginning in Genesis chapter 3, showing us that it is by faith and by faith alone. Another quick point that we want to nail down is how the Old Testament reveals to us divine revelation is that it reveals the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman. As we saw here in Luke chapter 24 on the Emmaus road, Jesus reminds these two disciples that these things should be known to them. They should have already understood that this is what is happening. They are slow of heart, uh, chapter 24, verse 25. They are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken regarding me, essentially is what he's saying, regarding the Messiah. So the Old Testament points to the work of the Messiah, that he's coming. Time does not allow us to maybe chronicle. You could take, for example, just the life of Moses or just the life of Joseph and show how they in type and in form and in practice Point to the Messiah. It's a beautiful thing to walk through the Old Testament 
and to look at the examples of those who foreshadow Christ and His coming. So number one, the Old Testament is divinely inspired. Number two, it's divine revelation from God to men. Number three, very quickly, it is foundational. It is foundational. If we're to study the New Testament with right understanding, we need to understand the promises made in the Old Testament. As we look into the New Testament, we can see that there is a chronological background for understanding God's redemptive plan. Walt Kaiser again says this, The Bible was meant to be read forward, not backward. And yet that's what many of us try to do. And we understand that. Oftentimes with a Christian, a new Christian, a baby Christian, we'll try to get them started. Or actually, we'll try to get them started in 1 John uh, right away. If someone is an unbeliever, we'll try to go walk through the Gospel of John to them because it declares who Jesus is. So we're not, we understand that. But we need to teach people to start in Genesis to understand the whole scope of what God who he is, what he is doing. And we understand also that oftentimes people need help. And that's why it's called discipleship. <laughs> it's called 101, teaching them, Matthew 28, all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded us. So we need to play a role in this as well. And by the way, just quickly, we cannot give what we do not have. So friends, may God help us, just in general, as a church individually, to study God's Word, to read it. I hope every member is in the Word every day. That's a phrase we say sometimes here at Grace. But there's a reason for that. As we study God's Word, we study it not only for the purpose of knowing Him more intimately, but we desire to teach, we desire to share, we desire to give. We are simply beggars telling other beggars where the source of the bread is and how they can find it. So the Old Testament is foundational. In the early years of the New Testament church, all they had was the Old Testament scriptures that they preached. The Old Testament was their basis of knowledge. Jesus models this for us. In fact, Jesus expected Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus communicates his expectation to Nicodemus as a teacher of the law, as a teacher of Israel, that he was to understand the truths about being born again. And he questions Nicodemus on that reality. In fact, one of Jesus' favorite questions is this, have you not read? He constantly was examining those who should have known the Word of God, particularly the religious leaders of Israel. But that phrase is so penetrating, isn't it? To anyone who would come to Jesus with an intent to grill him. And remember, he did not do, treat seeking lambs, if you will, the, the least of these are children or spiritual, simple people. He did not treat them abrasively at all. So he was not ever like it towards people who did not know. But to those who were exposed to the law, to the truth, he did have an expectation for them. And that expectation was communicated through the question, have you not read? And you could say, well, that sounds kind of sharp. Well, it is. Because the expectation is clear. God is a communicating God. God has chosen the vehicle and the means of not only words, but He's given us a canon of Scripture. He's given us books of the Bible that reveal who He is. And so sometimes we say, where are you, God? And He says, have you not read? Sometimes we have lack of clarity in our leading and in what God is doing in our life, but the problem is also we don't know our Bibles. And so as we know the Word of God... We know his character and his person, his nature. As we learn how he has worked in the past, how he's operated in the past, it gives us insight not only about who he is but how to pray, but also what to look forward to and what to anticipate. 
We're going to close tonight with Peter's sermon. But I want to point to Peter's sermon and Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts, just by way of example. When these men stood up, both men were led of the Holy Spirit. Stephen boldly before the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. And Stephen and then Peter standing to preach on the day of Pentecost. And these men were just filled and saturated not only with Scripture, but of course the Old Testament Scriptures, which has been our theme this evening. But they pointed them to the Old Testament. They preached the Word of God. And those messages are what pierced the heart of those who heard them. Of course, they preached Christ. They preached His death, burial, and resurrection. That's understood. But I just want to say the foundation of that is the Old Testament. Paul, again, reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. Notice what he says. He says that, Timothy, I commend you, I'm reminding you that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures or the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. So just like Jesus had an expectation for Nicodemus to know the Word of God because he had been exposed to the Word of God, Paul communicates this same expectation. And just as an example for children's discipleship and, and children's ministry, just notice the importance of it, not only in the home but also in the life of the church. Paul commends and says, Now, Timothy, remember, you've been, you've been catechized in these things. You've been taught the Old Testament, Holy Scripture, sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. Matthew chapter 4, as we consider the Old Testament here, is foundational. When Jesus is tempted, where does the main arrows, or actually all of his arrows, what, where, where does the sword of the Spirit that he uses, where does it come from? In Matthew chapter 4, when he is tempted of Satan, literally every quote he gives, I believe, is from the book of Deuteronomy. He knew the law. He knew the word. And it was an aid to him in the temptation of Satan. And friends, I want you to know it's an aid to you in the temptations that you face. Our Lord and Savior models this for us. But my main point tonight is not only the vehicle, which is the word of God, its source, which is in the Old Testament. So it's key. It's crucial. The Old Testament is vital to interpreting and understanding the new, not in the reverse only. Jesus makes clear in the inspiration of the New Testament that the church was built upon the foundation of the old. Jesus declared that the Old Testament spoke of him and testified of him. So we've seen already the Old Testament is divinely inspired. It is God's divine revelation to us. It is foundational. Then lastly, the Old Testament is confirmational. It's confirmational. God makes promise after promise. He makes covenants to his men, to his people in the Old Testament. And it's in the New Testament we see them fulfilled. Ultimately, in the person and work of Christ. So you can look at the Old Testament and summarize it as saying, promises made. Promises made. But as you only read the New Testament, if you only read the New Testament, what you will find is the promises fulfilled. But you won't understand the significance if you don't understand the promise made. So much of what you see in the New Testament in Jesus is all of the, uh, the fulfilling of all the promises that have been made are fulfilled in Christ. And it's what makes him glorious. Isaiah 53, for example, 700 years before the coming of the Messiah, he was prophesied in great detail. And Jesus fulfills all of Isaiah chapter 53. Well, to understand that and the glories of that, you need to go back to where the promise was made or the prophecy was given. 
And then you come back to the New Testament and you see its beauty even in fresher eyes or newer eyes. And it gives us a, a love that increases an appreciation for the person and work of Christ. So as we look into the Word of God, we see that it is confirmational. Romans 15, verse 8, Christ has become the servant on behalf of the truth to confirm, notice here, the promise given to the fathers. And so it's key that when we see Christ coming in the flesh, God in the flesh, that He is fulfilling all of these Old Testament promises made, going back to Genesis chapter 3, where the promise was given that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. To see how he has fulfilled what was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Abraham and you, all the families of the earth, on the earth, shall be blessed. How? Through Christ and his finished work. What a joy. And that's why Matthew begins the beginning of Matthew's gospel, chronicling this lineage of the king. Your king is here. Well, how do we know? And he chronicles his heritage, going all the way back to David and going back to Abraham, both Luke and and Matthew do that for us. Well, again, the Old Testament helps us to understand the new. If you're to take the New Testament and to squeeze it, most of your New Testament would fall out because the Old Testament is coming out of it as the New Testament writers are writing back and referring back to the glories of the promises that have been made to us and all that Christ has done, who He is, that they're fulfilled in Christ. Turn with me very quickly over to Acts chapter 2, and I want us to give an example of how the Lord raised up Peter and how the Old Testament is exemplified in Peter's expositional sermon as he preaches to the audience and the crowd here this day. And we're going to conclude with this example. So please, I hope you find your place in God's Word. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin there in verse 1. Remember what I told you, that if your Bible has passages that are italicized, I'll try to make a comment as we go, um, but these italicized passages in the middle of Peter's sermon, they are references to the Old Testament. So keep that in mind as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, speaking of hard words, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome. Now notice here, this is all the people present, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. 
So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, Well, they're full of new wine. Now, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. What is preaching? Well, amongst many things that preaching is, is <laughs> the raising of a voice. <laughs> Peter stands up and he raises his voice and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now notice he makes a connection to a prophecy given by Joel, we see this in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, just as a reference point. Joel says this, And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy... I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't forget verse 21, because it will happen at the end of this sermon. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, men of Israel... Hear these words. Now notice, he's preaching the Old Testament to them. He's calling them to give ear. Have ears to hear. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands you have crucified, you have put to death, who God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now, here in verse 25, we see an Old Testament reference comes from Psalm 16, verse 8. Psalm 16, verse 8. He says, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Peter, what are you doing now? Well, he, he asked for permission again, being funny. And he says, now I'm going to really start speaking freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, I want you to know, Peter says, verse 32, this God, this Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. What you have is a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
But he says this himself. Now here, verse 34, we see a quotation coming from Psalm 68, 18. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now Peter says, winding down, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he's made him both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, now why is this important? He's preaching to an audience that is not only assorted, but particularly to the Jews. And he wants them to know that Jesus is the Messiah. So therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were, some translations say, pierced to the heart, cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Or, in the language of the Philippian jailer, what must we do to be saved? Hold on a second. How do we get men to this point in our evangelism, in our preaching and teaching? Friends, it's not unhitching from the Old Testament. It's pointing men not only to Christ, but preaching the whole counsel of God's word to them. And their response to Peter's message is simply this. What must we do? to be saved. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And you'll notice verse 41, he says, and with many other words, verse 40, he testified and exhorted them. He wasn't done yet, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those, the Holy Spirit records for us, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And then what they do? They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Peter's message is the prototype template for all messages. Peter preaches Christ. Peter references the whole counsel of God's word. Peter points to how Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises made and how those promises are fulfilled in the person of Christ in the New Testament. What an example for us, friends. We should not be ashamed of the whole counsel of God's word. May God give us as his people renewed joy and liberty as we read the word of God, as we find ourselves in our Bible reading plans, not just kind of skipping over passages, even though at times we understand it can be laborious. May we comfort our hearts by knowing this is the inspired word of God. And if I am reading it, if it's here, there's a reason why God wants me to have it, to treasure it. As the psalmist says, it is my very food. We echo what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 34. Lord, as I come before your word, both New Testament and Old Testament, would you teach me your law? And if you will teach me your law, I give you this promise. I will obey it with all of my heart. May the Lord help us to do that personally. And as we begin to move into the book of Ruth, starting a new sermon, sermon series next Sunday night, may the Lord help us to see the glories of Christ, even in little books in the Old Testament like the book of Ruth. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you that you are our Messiah. We thank you that you loved us and set your affections upon us as your people, that you have called us out of darkness, 
into marvelous light. We have everything that we need in the Word of God. All that we need for life and godliness, to understand who you are. And Father, our constant need is to focus upon our holy God. Focusing upon your beauty, your glory, your holiness is the answer to all of our problems. So Lord, we pray that you would strengthen your people as we prepare to leave this place. As we prepare to begin a new week that has begun today, moving into tomorrow. May we go forth as people that are filled with your joy. These things were written to you, John writes in 1 John, so that your joy may be full. Father, may our joy be full this evening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we conclude this evening, just a general reminder about the announcement uh, that we made this morning.